Hey everybody, my name is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. Before we get into the episode proper, I want to touch on two things. Actually, a couple things, but two things mainly. First off, this will be a normal episode. If last week was your first time listening to a episode of the podcast, this is usually just me ranting about cartoons instead of me and Lauren or somebody else ranting about cartoons. I do occasionally have guest hosts that come on here with me, but and Lauren will return. For those of you who really liked having her on the podcast, she had already said, like, I'd come back every so often, to which I said, remember, you were the one who said that out loud to me in a text message. Um, but the on that note, I also wanted to thank everybody, and I mean everybody, who listened to the episode on Evangelion. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast that maybe skipped last week, surprise, I released an episode about Evangelion just like everybody else in the the anime world (laughs) last week. Um, But, like, also like a lot of people, it's from two people who have a lot of history with... Evangelion, the show, uh, the last thing I want to talk about that will actually lead us into our main segment, since we are talking about another Netflix show this week, is the, the way that Netflix handles the dub of Ava is kind of indicative of the way they've handled anime, and it's but it's exacerbated. And what I mean by that is a lot of people have noticed that they, instead of just buying the rights to the show and putting the original dub on the service, most likely because they wanted to make sure it was dubbed into every other available language they have, which if you stick around for the after credits, uh, for the end credits, or after the end credits of any given show, there's black screen credits that are like for the Portuguese team, for the Swahili team, for the Italian team of every single show that Netflix had the rights to, or is a Netflix original. And so when they originally announced that they were, you know, scrapping the original English dub and redubbing it, part of the reason was probably because they had to do all these dubs anyway, and they wanted to give it a more modern sound. Which I understand. Somebody posted a <laughs> clip from the old dub that sounds like Eddie from Ed, Ed, and Eddie saying, All the missiles have hit the target, but like screaming it at the top of his lungs and screaming as like his plane smashes into the ground. Um, but A, they changed the dub, and my problem with it, and I, I don't have many problems with what they did to Ava other than fly me to the moon, which we'll get to in a second, um, is that they, in the original dub of Ava, there was, there's an effectiveness to the voice work that reflects what's happening to the character on screen, so when they, you know, flood the entry plug with LCL for the first time in episode one, Shinji 
says, I think I'm going to be sick, and he's like, he sounds like, he sounds like someone who's like, oh, I guess my dad's just drowning me now. Um, but in the, and you can go see this for yourself in the first episode. Um, in the new dub, it, there's no, there's no slight change of voice, there's no, there's no, it, the dub isn't contextual, it's really flat across the board, and, um, I think it was Austin Walker, which, by the way, I am waiting with bated breath for the Waypoint staff outside of Austin and Kato to experience Evangelion in full for the first time, because I have a feeling that's gonna rock their world on some level. Um, but... Uh, he noted that there was this guy who, like, sounded like he just gave the littlest of shits about the fact that there is a giant space monster drilling into their military base to murder, the, to kill the entirety of humanity. And it's just like that flatness. You probably wouldn't notice it if you'd only seen if this version of Ava was the only thing you'd seen, or you'd only seen the Japanese dub of Ava before, and you had no English reference, but the English dub, while it was hokey and wasn't the best, had some moments in it where it went above and beyond. Um, so there's that. There's also, apparently, an end of Ava. They, like, did things like they changed love to like, they took out curse words, and all that nonsense. And that, that, that is, more than likely, that is the, dub, whatever dub team worked on this, and I don't know, although I do recognize some of the voices, I think, I think Johnny on Botch is the pilot, is the, um, voice of the fourth child. Also, so, this is the one thing that drives me absolutely up a wall. They made, they clearly had the dub team make colloquial changes. So instead of, instead of saying like, it means I love you, Shinji, they they have Kao, they have Kaoru say, it means I like you, Shinji, which, in, as a colloquial change, A, sucks a lot, B, I, it doesn't. It it uh, you understand what it's taught, what it's saying as a voice line, but you don't understand. But like, it doesn't spell it out for you in the way that it's supposed to just spell it out for you. It's supposed to set. It's supposed to like tell you exactly what's happening in that moment, and it just falls just short. But what they do. In the entirety of the dub that drives me insane, is they refer to the children, to the children, to the to like the first child, second child, third child, as is this guy second? Is is this the second children, or is this the third children, or is this the fourth children? At like so like instead of using, I can't believe you're the you're the third child. Oscar said to him, I can't believe you're the third children. It just drives me up a wall. 
because it's not like it it makes that that moment every time they talk they mention like the concept of the first child, the second child, the third child by using the word children instead of child for a singular person, it makes it sound like a bad trans like a bad too literal translation which makes no sense considering they like softened other translations to sound more quite frankly weirdly millennial or gen x e and it it just it's not good and then also there's the added bonus of as far as i can understand being too cheap because they're Netflix and they have the money, trust me, to buy the rights for Fly Me to the Moon for, and this is the insane part, the English dub only. Apparently, you if you flip over to the Japanese dub, Fly Me to the Moon is still there. And it's just... Uh, okay. Now, I did ask Lauren about this. Um, actually, yesterday, because I was talking to her about some other stuff. Um, and she was like, yeah, I don't mind the Fly Me to the Moon thing. It was never my favorite part of that show. I'm okay with it disappearing. But, and, like, I, to I totally get that, and that's fine. But the thing is, is that they... And we'll, I'll get into this, and this is, like I said, going to lead into our topic today. I... Anim anime is a very specific niche. And if, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that. But I'm getting to a point, I swear. Anime is a very specific niche. And it's a very specific medium and culture and industry at this point. The industry has... And industries have standards. And the major reason why this, why Ava was not licensed by Crunchyroll, was not licensed by High Dive, although of the two, High Dive would probably be more chomping at the bit to do it since they have a more Crunchyroll certainly has classic anime, but High Dive kind of like has a more like they've built their house out of classic anime in a way, but you know, it wasn't on High Dive it wasn't on Densu when Densu was a thing. I don't know what happened to Densu. Honestly, it could be dead in a pit. Who knows? Um, it wasn't on any of these niche anime or sci-fi streaming services because no one could pay the money. But what would happen is if, um, say, Densu... Not Densu. Never Densu. Say, Crunchyroll, High Dive... Verve, which is part of Crunchyroll, technically, Funimation, any of them had access to that property within a financial, and were able to financially work it out, they would have bought it because it would print money. <laughs> there are a few, there are fewer sure things in the world of anime than Netflix will print, than not Netflix, um, then, even, then Evangelion will print money. I, I, and that's part of the reason why 
You see Funimation go after every Ava thing it can afford. So all the new all the new Ava movies are licensed in in print through Funimation, but the series is out of gra is out of reach for them. And what what those companies would do with it is they would treat it like a um almost like a Criterion series, like a Criterion movie, but a TV series. And that they would basically take it wholly formed and just put it up. They, if, if Fly Me to the Moon couldn't get in there, they would probably do their best to like say, like, no, we only buy this if we get all of the soundtrack. My first big worry, and I'm sure lots of people's first big worry, was... Cruel Angel sees this. Like, if Cruel... The... Fly Me to the Moon isn't there. It's, I, I literally... I tweeted at the record company that owns the rights. Um, and I was like, can you please work with them? Because this is... Like, this isn't the deal breaker for this show. But it would be hell of a nice thing if Fly Me to the Moon was in there. But, especially since now the end is some weird low low techno bullshit, which is just bad. Um but if Cruel Angel Thesis wasn't there, there is no party. Like there would be there, Cruel Angel Thesis isn't there, burn it to the ground, burn the shit to the ground. But if an anime company was taking care of this, even somebody like Funimation who has legendarily stripped openings and endings, great openings and endings, out of the shows that they were on the production committee for, hello Dimension W, um, then they, they would say, like, no, this is the one show, this is a formative show, it is so important to the history of anime all the way through that we need to get all the soundtrack beats on this show, meaning Cruel Angel Thesis, got it, Fly Me to the Moon, got it, got it for interstitial, got it for every dub that exists, and they would probably put the original dub up. And now, the new music they put in the end, for somebody who's seen Ava for the first time, they, like, it won't, they won't make heads or tails of it, it's just ending music. But the thing about anime as a market for Netflix is that it's never about just the people who are seeing it for the first time. It's always about, yes, those people, but also an existing fandom, an existing niche that they can get to, like, fork up the 8 to $13 a month to pay for the privilege to watch these shows, to watch these exclusive shows. And on that note, we're gonna be the show we're gonna be talking about this week is actually the second season of a show I covered in this podcast already called Kakegurui. And I usually don't do this, but because I think the second season was more of such a fantastic thing, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it probably in a different way than I talked about the first season. So, without further ado, let's get into Kakegurui Season 2. 
てる快感愛し合うの全て最高のギャンボThree million yen, which is supposed to be an ungodly sum of money. Like, she, she won, like, probably 30 million yen or something. But, so now starts a new. You're led to believe a new semester? And, um, Yumiko is, you know, gambling till her heart's content, all this other stuff. But the school president. Um, and it's, and it's Yumiko's name comes in to play here. Yumiko Jabami. And I think, I forget what the vice president's name is, um, but her last name ends in Bami. And this part of the background story of the, of the main plot of season two for, um, Kakigurui. Involves the family with the like surname Bami at the end of it, and you find out ultimately that you found out in the first season in the first season that this school was ruled by the by the student council president, and that this school is comprised of basically the leaders of Japan's children. So like. The leaders of the Japanese bureaucracy all send their children here, and it, the Momo, what you find out to be the Momobami family, basically uses their daughter, their, the head of their family's daughter, uses gambling as a way to determine almost the course. Of the future, because if you lose at gambling, you become a house pet, and you like are like basically sold into servitude for an, to another family somehow. And you find out that that can be sexual, but it can also be like slave labor related. <laughs> but, um, because The student council president lost at her gamble. She makes the executive decision to have a student council election in which, first and foremost, her position as student council president is up for grabs and there'll be an election. But the way that she decides to make it work, instead of just simply having a general vote like you would in a normal high school, Is that everybody gets one gambling chip. And it, that gambling chip can be bet and works as a vote. And so they call these votes. They call the, the、um, play chips votes. So you can bet your vote 
and your vote can't be taken away from you involuntarily, and it can't be purchased from you, it has to be won through a gamble. Now, you see, as always in this show, there are, like, ways to skirt around that. But what you also come to find out is that the Momobami clan, so to speak, has never been super fond of the student council president, and so the entire clan sends all of their children into this school, I shit you not, to... Bear to, to, like, vie for power, because whoever controls this school, not only controls the school, but also becomes the head of the Momobami family, and their empire, and their fortune. And you come to find out that, you know, the Momobami clan had their fingers in everything from, gov from government, to, to pharmaceutical, to the prison system, literally all the big evil things that print money for, like, the top 1%, this family has a hand in. And eventually somebody says, you know, why, why... Hey, Yumiko, your last name is Yumiko Jabami. Are you part of this family? And she's like, I, I think so, but I've never met any of my relatives, so technically... And that was alluded to in the first series. But... What's really interesting about this show is that it's not it's not an exploration of it, it it's not an exploration of what that is because of the version of the show and it might go in, more in depth into it in the manga where they explore Yumiko's past and what and why Yumiko exists in the way she exists where she in the first season, shows up and seems to already be in debt. And in the, in the entire show is this, like, gambling force of nature where it's not just an addiction, it's like... It's like a sexuality for her. Like, gambling is, like, her sexuality. It's her, like, way of, like, expressing her sexuality to the world, basically. And that bores out in this show all the time. Um, most impressively in this season, in the Tilted Tower Gamble, basically. Or in the Tower of Doors, is what they actually call it. Gamble. But, basically, the thing I came away from this show most interested in is the way that it depicts, depicts female power. And, and I mean female power in the sense that the men in this show exist to be trampled for the most part. There are there are the two the two male twins from the Jabami clan, but they they're not what you're there to watch. Like you don't look at them and think, man, aren't they cool? You think, man, they sure are there. Whereas every single female character in this show is, tyrann is tyrannical and terrifying in a way that wouldn't raise, that would raise eyebrows if they were male, but would not be, 
so fascinating and so entertaining if they were male, because it would just be like, oh, this guy's a douchebag, like, kind of like jo like like in JoJo's. Imagine if JoJo's characters were female, almost. If they were, like, that depraved and insane. Mainly, imagine the Kakuin cherry tongue situation. Imagine that, but, like, with a lady, and that's what you get in, um, J Yumiko's, like, desperate, the girl who's, like, desperate to get with Yumiko, I forget her name, I'm forgetting a lot of names today, um, the one with the eye patch who, uh, lures Yumiko into the, like, gun prison cell gamble in the first, in the first season, in the first season. She's, like, the cockling cherry nightmare gift that you can already see in your head. I know you can. Don't lie. Um, but because the characters in this show are written in such a in a way that disregards the fact that, like, the very concept of shame and they're they're written it, that gives people the ability, that gives the writers of the show the ability to write it so they can make those characters, re A, really take, like, genuinely insane gambling risks, but B, be, like, powerful, genuinely powerful in the act of gambling and generally like, terrifying to, like, stare down. The first gamble of, like, the kerplunk, I heard somebody, um, refer to it as the, as the, as the, like, masochistic kerplunk game they face. They pitch this girl who's from the Momobami clan, whose, like, family ex had, had been involved in torture for, have been in the torture industry for eat for like decades, and they pitch her against Yumiko and the um eye patch girl, and like in that moment she realizes like oh fuck, I fucked up. Anywhere else I would have been fine. Anywhere else I would have been like at an advantage, but I managed to do this in the one place where they are fucking into it. They are fucked up, and they are, like, down for this getting, like, like potentially getting a finger cut off. In fact, the one on the right, I think, wants it to happen. The one on the left is kind of looking forward to it, but, like, it's just excited at the possibility that it is possible to lose a finger. And I am screwed. And... The other thing is, because this whole show is usually, is generally female on female psychological warfare and violence, it, it levels the playing field. So you as the viewer can watch it. it actually, John Wick is similar to this. If you watch a John Wick movie, you'll notice that that movie skillfully removes 
a lot of the things that you, you would find objectionable in an action movie. It has, I think in all of John Wick, he faces one female assassin and she fucked him up just as bad. And she lives. She's one of the few ones that lives. Um, I'm pretty sure. It, um, there's no... The only violence towards any kind of animal is basically the license John Wick has to murder half of New York City, of the New York City greater area. <laughs> I, the... I, and what I'm trying to say here is that Media, especially super entertaining media, very rarely does anything to remove the parts of it that are so objectionable that would take you out of it. Like, if you see a horror movie, the classic thing is the black guy always dies first. So as soon as that happens, it feels like a disappointment. Not because you were looking, f you were necessarily looking for it to not happen, or even you were expecting it to not happen. You probably expected it to happen, but because of how much you realize in that moment, it would be so beautiful for it to not happen that way. And just as in John Wick, in Kakegurui, especially season two, the people who are the most in power, the people who are the most terrifying, the people who are the most in control of the narrative and most, like, the, the, the people who are the monsters that go bump in the night in the show are the people who in another series would get eaten by the monster who in another lesser-skilled variant of Kakegurui would get eaten by the... by the... by the monster. Like, Yumiko in another series would be seen as a gambling addict... in another variant of the series would be seen as a wretched gambling addict that no one could help. You know, um... I think her name is Karen, the woman who is the teenage girl who is wheelchair-bound and who is pulling the strings of the entire Momobami clan would be... Well, I, I know how she's treated in another show. We have an example of it. It's called Spec Ops... Magical Girl Spec Ops Asuka. That the, like, whiplash, whatever her... whatever the fuck her name is, is one of... I can say this as a disabled person worst depictions of a disabled person and most aggressive, like, shitting on of a disabled person I have seen in a show, period. And, but, Karen, from, who heads up the Momobami family in Kakigurui Season 2, isn't just confident in herself, isn't just intelligent, she isn't just manipulative, she is, like, you do not cross her, and she is depicted as someone who people respect 
and who people revere because she, because of her intellect, because of her ability, instead of, in spite of her disability, and in spite of her being a woman or a young woman, people still respect her. And it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me that this show so commits to showing the kind of, like, terror that you can enact with a confident, deeply crazy, but confident female cast that... Oftentimes, in female-led anime, you don't get. So, if you look at something more recent, like the, like, Moe Blob universe, like, even, um... Uh, what's it called? Um, Love, Chini Byo, and Other Delusions. Those characters have inner lives, but for the most part, they're cute Moe Blob characters. Um... Kaon is kind of one of the, like, progenitors of the Moe Blob thing that has happened ever since. And in those, in lots of those shows, in lots of the shows that are female-led, it feels like women, it feels like the male characters are missing because the show has no need for them, because you, the viewer, are male, and this is, and these characters are here for you and not some other character. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that, and there are, like, mixings of those ideas that develop into other genuinely interesting things. There are bad, awful characters in great, good shows that always happens. But in Kakigurui, the whole show so far, not just the second season, but the second season really drives on this. It doesn't feel... It feels like you're along for the ride the way Ryota's along for the ride. And you can't help but like be glued to the screen of like, oh man... Like, like, these girls are going to get married at some day, someday, you think? But they're not going to need husbands. <laughs> like, this is not, like, they are, like, they, they're not going to need husbands at all. And if you want a perfect example of how this concept of, like, strong, very heavy... Yuri overtoned thing can be not um can be executed badly. I would look at something like Valkyrie I think it's called Valkyrie Overdrive Mermaid or Valkyrie Drive Mermaid. And that is basically a show where a girl discovers that she can turn into a sword. And so she gets, like, the government picks her up, kerplunks her on an island, and she becomes a lesbian with this big Amazonian, like, 
gangster gal character. And that that show is all but entirely is what I said earlier. It is devoid of male characters, entirely devoid of male characters. Spoiler alert, because there's a cross-dressing character people think is male and turns out not to be. Because they want... It is a performance for you, the viewer. The Kakegurui isn't a performance. It doesn't, because it doesn't feel like one. It feels like this is what happens in this fictional universe when you're not there. It feels like they are gambling anyway and you just happen to be on the video feed. <laughs> and that is, that is... That effect on you, the viewer, and in portraying those kinds of relationships and that kind of strength is so much different than the Valkyrie Drive mermaids of the universe where they have things like two very clearly lesbian characters who never actually do anything except for make out and be dressed in half in like half the clothing necessary for any given scene because that's that's a performance for that target audience and yes is Kakigurui Certainly fetishistic, absolutely. I'm not going to pretend it's not. But what it's not is it's not... It doesn't feel like if given a choice, the characters would not be doing this anyway. Or if the fourth wall was broken and some, somehow those characters could see you, the viewer, they would they would look at you and they would be surprised because people like they exist in a TV, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't change. There would be no flip of a switch. Yumiko doesn't change whether she's in front of you or Ryota or Mary or anybody. Mary doesn't change either. Mary would flip you off and keep going. And these factors make it an entirely different show. Because you have a dynamic now that it doesn't need that has male characters, even though it didn't need to, because they're story centric, and has male characters who are constantly behind the eight ball because they realize, like, I showed up to a school with a bunch of fucking crazies. What the hell am I gonna do? And it handles, it kind of handles all of the things that Valkyrie Drive Mermaid does without the gratuitous TNA that is just there for TNA, if that makes any sense. Like, whereas in Valkyrie Drive Mermaid, the costume design is feels like it is focused at the male gaze. The costume design in Kakegurui is 
done to invoke a ga- it, it's done to invoke gambling a gambling parlor uniform. But also it's like it's red and black with black and gray checkers and like the cross tie and everything is really like prim and proper and perfect and there's a beauty to it. There's so um I I don't know how many people would have would have remember this manga because it's actually not manga. I think it's a manhwa technically, but there's a manhwa called Kill Me Kiss Me, and in the beginning of that manhwa, I think it's a manhwa. I don't think it's a manga. Um, the character, the main character, is praying that she gets into this high school because they have the best looking uniforms. You know, um, the school. The academy in Kakegurui feels like a girl would want, like people would want, like a girl would want to go there because they have really cool, beautiful uniforms. Not because you know, and the uniforms don't feel like they are designed by you know someone who is like, what do I put a like? I should put tights on this girl so she can like kick epically and, like, rip them and, like, I can give some, like, very specific weird boners. And that, like, I know I keep harping on this, but those differences matter because the way you perceive the strength of female character in Kakagurui is different. Now, I'm not saying that, like, there isn't a place for things like Sailor Moon that are innocent and demonstrate, you know, female empowerment in a much broader, less realistic, less ugly way. (laughs) But because this show, because this property, not just show, it's got a manga too, is so specific in the fact that, like, it shows ugly crying. It shows, like, these girls as they're, like, maniacally, like, death-staring from above, and they're just, like, the most gnarled, titan-face-looking, fucking insane bullshit ever. Because it shows that stuff, and because it's willing to show that stuff, and it's not... It... <laughs> At no point does this show even pause suggest that you know the conniving it doesn't have this like hatred for the idea of like the conniving intellectually dishonest female villain no it, it it's a show about gambling and about cheating at gambling and about winning at all costs and about putting yourself up for the insane challenge of gambling where your life could be on the line as a high schooler and it it is not afraid to make that get weird and ugly in a way that you know shows that are typically aimed at the audience that this show don't get me wrong is also largely aimed at which is you know um male audience of a certain age group with certain proclivities. Usually those shows don't 
veer into that lane because they set up their premise where they're very good at being very cute girls, doing very cute things for a very specific amount of time, and then moving on to another cute thing that is entirely different from what the premise of the show is about. Shows like Upot, shows like K-On! I forget what that bike riding, what that motorcycle show is called, but that came up um, in something I was reading recently. And those shows, those shows, once again, this is a place for those shows. I mean, uh, training, training with um, what's their face, the, the like series of training and sleeping POV videos that came out a while ago. Um, those shows, it's fine that those exist. You know, if that's your thing, go for it. But if you're, if you're looking for unabashed appreciation of you know girls doing badass bullshit while gambling then you don't get better than um Kakigurui what kind of is is what if every character in this show was insane fucking Fujiko from Lupin the Third and if you've ever seen, um, if you've ever seen Monkey Punch, who I think, when, when Monkey Punch was alive, Monkey Punch is dead now. Rest in peace, Monkey Punch. I, it, when he talked about Fujiko, and when he talked about the kind of sexualization of Fujiko, it, he didn't always do it well, and it wasn't always handled perfectly, but... His goal was for Fujiko to be the only source of that kind of thing in the show. Was for Fujiko and Lupin to have a real, tangible relationship of some kind. And for that, like, crude sexual humor and sexualization of Fujiko to be in the context of she cared for Lupin in that way and he cared for her in that way. Instead of just being lurid for lurid's sake. And Fujiko also was a character who used her sexuality in a weaponized way toward literally everybody, except for um, Goemon and Jigen. But, so, Kakigurui is like a, a, a gambling anime where every character is Fujiko on angel dust, basically. And so I just, and I know I've been ranting about this for a while now, but I just want to talk about the show because I had recorded the Evangelion episode early, so I had the time to watch this show and really enjoy it, and when I came away from it, I I was left with that, with the feeling of wow, huh, this really is like something profound in the way that in the fact that it presents these female characters in a way that we that creators would not flinch at presenting male characters and it presents them with the kind of power and personality that's oftentimes reserved for a male character.
However, that said, um, I'm sorry if you were looking for something more akin to the Ava episode. Those do happen on this feed. Um, not, I'm not going to say regularly, but often enough where they do happen. Um, you can go listen to the first episode about Kakigurui if you're interested in, it, in this podcast feed. Um, and until next... And I hope you like this podcast. And if you did, please, you know, tell your friends. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave me a five-star review. That really helps the show. But until next time, I have been Alex. And you have been listening to Lunchbox Radio. And I'll talk to you later.